Okay, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Chapter 9. Chapter 9, yeah, we're, we're moving. So, remember, 1 through 8 is about uh, justification, sanctification, glorification, and then in the middle of that, or in that doctrine, right, uh, Paul has to teach good orthodoxy, in the sense he has to give the Church of Rome good doctrine because they weren't established by an apostle or weren't established by any real leader, per se, other than Christ, which is the leader. But it seems that Christ called Paul to, to put it on Paul's heart to write a letter to make sure that the Roman church was well-grounded. So the first eight chapters are good doctrine, right? Good orthodoxy. And then from chapter 12 to chapter 16 is going to be orthopraxy, which is now that you have good doctrine, how do you have good conduct based on that good, that good doctrine? But in between that, he needs to answer the question of what about Israel? Because he's been promising these Gentile, well, Jew and Gentile believers, all these blessings, all these promises, all these things that God has done for you. Remember, we've been going over election. God elected you, right? He elected you. You did not elect him. He elected you. When you were dead in your sin, right, all of sin, all of fall short of glory. There's no one who chooses him. No one seeks righteousness. So you are saved because of his divine calling. And as a result of that divine calling, he gives you all of these blessings. He makes sure that you are justified, sanctified, glorified. And so Paul is saying all these wonderful blessings that you've obtained from God's love for you, right? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. All these things, nothing can separate you. So all these things he gives you is because he loves you and he chose you. So then Paul says, well, somebody or many people might ask, what about the Jews? What happened to the Jews? Because God promised them all these things too, right? All these wonderful things, the covenants, the blessings, the law, the Messiah, all these things were to the Jews. So Paul is... is sort of anticipating the question of what about the Jews, right? So he's going to answer a few questions, and those questions are, why are the Jews, so few Jews, being saved when the gospel is to the Jew first, right? Romans 1, 16 is, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? It's to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Second question is, can the Gentiles trust God when his promises to Israel have not been fulfilled? The third question is, has the gospel invalidated God's promises to Israel? And so he goes through a series of asking and answering these questions in this little section between 9 and 11. Um, and so that's kind of the, the basic premise and basic outline of those chapters. Um, and just by way of review, that he starts out with his own sorrow, right? In chapter 9 he says, If I could trade my salvation, I would. I'd let all of Israel be saved and me not, me to be condemned, knowing that that couldn't happen, right? So then he asks, asks a series of questions and answers, and you know, he's basically pointing out the Word of God has not failed, right? The Word of God has not failed. The Word of God was a thing that gave the Jews all of those understandings, all of those principles, all of those promises. Um, and then he explains that not all of Israel are of Israel, right? Not all of Israel. There's always a remnant that is considered the true Israel, right? The spiritual Israel. And then we talked about in this chapter, or chapter 9, um, the calling, right? And how God can call whomever he wants, right? He used 
Isaac, as an example, even though he promised Abraham a son, right? And then through that son, there would be uh, a land, a seed, and a worldwide blessing. He also had a son of Ishmael with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, right? He also had six other sons outside of Sarah, right? Uh, Keturah, I believe was yeah. her name, right? Um, but God chose and God picked Isaac. He said, this is the one, right, whom I will carry the blessing to. And even more so, in the womb of Rebekah was, was it Rebekah? Um, yeah, I believe Rebekah, right? Uh, Jacob and Esau? Jacob and Esau, right? And, and they were twins, right? In the womb, God chose Jacob over Esau, right? Not based upon anything, not based upon the color of his hair or the color of his skin or whether he was good or bad. He chose Jacob because he wanted to choose Jacob. That's, what it, that's just simply what it says, right? Um, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, he says. So, and, and basically, from that, that election, right, the idea that God can choose that, right? God can choose whomever he wants. He can have mercy on who he wants. He can use vessels for uh, corruption or vessels for incorruption, right? And so then that would pose another question. The question would be, well, is that unjust? Is God unjust? And that's in 9 verses 14 through 18. And he says, by no means God is not unjust, right? He has the right to show his mercy as he pleases. He has the right to show his severity as he pleases. And Paul uses Pharaoh as an example of that, of hardening the heart of Pharaoh and preparing Moses for glory in a sense, right? God does what he wants. So then we'll start, this is where we pick up in verses 19 through 29. And so the question is, God is, is God unjust? And Paul says, no, by no means. And then another question was, and how, how is it that if God elects and God does what he wants, because he's God, how does he find fault? How could he find fault in somebody who doesn't follow his plan, right? That's sort of a logical question that Paul is anticipating from a human term, a human mind, a human perspective. How does God find fault? Um, so let's read verse 19. We kind of went over it, but we're going to go over it just to give us a good moment of it. Okay, so someone read verse 19, if you would. One of you will, will say to me, then why, why does God still blame us for who resist his will? Right, Can you can't stop God's will, right? I can't stop God's will, right? Why does he still find fault in me if his will is to choose this person and not choose that person, right? Um, so immediately Paul shows you that it's from a human perspective. He says, you will, right? A human will say, you will say to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Um, if God can harden heart and God can soften hearts, how can he blame people when they're doing what he willed them to do, right? How can he condemn them to damnation if he's willing them to do it? And so Paul provides the, the answer in an illustration, but he never really answers the the question, right? So someone read verse 20 through 21, if you would. But who are you only on to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? He's the potter. Oh, has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
Right, so we see really that he never answers the question directly, but deals with the attitude, right? The attitude of the heart. Um, and what's he really pointing out? Is he's, point, he's pointing out the attitude that the creation would have towards the creator, right? That they're forgetting the relationship of the creator to the creation, creation right? So the, the example or the illustration of a pot and a potter, right? Does the pot have the right to say to the potter, why did you do this to me, right? Why did you make this me this way or whatever, right? Um, we can understand that when you, when we decide to make something, we have the right to make it the way we want to make it, basically, right? And it can be used for uh, honorable things, like a chalice at a communion or something, or it can be used for dishonorable things as like a sewage pot, right? Whatever you decide to make it that way, who is it that, who is it that the pot can say to the potter, why, right? That's his basic response, right? Paul's responding that. He's not answering, why does God condemn? He's saying, oh man, who are you? And I've, I've said it before, if you don't like it, get your own universe, you know? And you don't have that power. You can't get your own universe, right? So you gotta play by the rules of the universe creator, right? So it's really about a, a, a proper heart attitude towards the creator, towards the potter, right? So, and here's, here's the reality. If God did not elect, what would happen? If God did not elect, in light of what we've learned in Romans even, if God did not choose you, what would happen? We'd all go down. We'd all be damned, right? We all, because no one will choose him. No one chooses him. There's none that seek after God. We think we're very good people. We can justify and rationalize our behavior like anybody, you know. Um, but if God did not elect even the remnant of the Jews, none would have been saved because none seek after God. We're not lost because of our hardenedness, right? Our hardenedness, we're, all, we're hardened because we're already lost, right? Does that make sense? We're, we're not, we're, we're not, we're not lost and then we become hardened. We're, we're I'm sorry, we are, we're lost and we become hardened as a result. We're not hardened as a result of being lost, right? It's kind of a, I could confuse you all day with that, but um, we're already filled with sin, right? And we already fall short of the glory of God's righteousness. And so we're lost because sinners don't seek God, right? It isn't until he reveals himself and, and opens and breathes life into you that you then respond, right? So let's see the application of that premise and that understanding. Let's read verse 22, if you would. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So who are the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Unbelievers, yeah. right? Really, they're they're fit for destruction. Their body has been prepared. Their mind has been prepared. Their life has been prepared for destruction. Um, and God, but what if God, desiring to show His wrath, makes made known His power? If God, in His wrath, decided to make known His power, nobody would be left, right? Everybody would be condemned, right? But 
but he has endured with much patience to those people, right? Those people are still going on. You look around the world and we have a world full of people fit for destruction still living as though they are, you know, doing great and everything's great and they're the smart ones or whatever, you know. So Paul's describing unbelievers as his vessels of wrath and that they're prepared for destruction. But God, who's the one who prepares the vessels for his mercy? He's the one, right? He's the one who prepares vessels of his mercy. And he's endured with much suffering, long suffering, those who have prepared themselves for destruction, right? So he's, if God, it's like we said, if God, why doesn't God show himself? It's what people might say, you know. Well, if God shows himself, you're going to die, right, <laughs> without, without him. Because his, his showing of himself in his glory and in his wrath is condemning, right? Only being justified, only by faith in Christ alone, are you prepared or are you sanctified to, to receive him and to see him, right? So he, he describes vessels of destruction in 22. Let's look at vessels of mercy in 23. So read 23, if you would, please. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Right. So while the unbelievers fit themselves for destruction, God makes believers fit for salvation. Remember we said before that, that every body is eternal in the sense that you will receive a body. You will receive a body for glorification or you will receive a body for damnation. Right. You will receive a body. Your body that we're in physically is decaying and it is corruptible but you will receive a body of some sort to withstand damnation of God or the glorification of God right those whom he elects he glorifies and fits them for salvation um, and so he to those that he fits for salvation he's he's revealing himself or makes known the riches of his glory right because they were prepared by him Right? Because they are prepared and fit for salvation, he reveals his glory and his mercy to them. So in verse 24, Paul continues and he spells out a principle to, that we should follow. So read 24 if you would. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So remember how he previously was talking about how within Judaism, within the Jews, are two groups, right? The unbelieving Jews and the remnant, right? The remnant, the remnant of the Jews have always been what the promise is to, right? And now he's saying, even us as Gentiles, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In the Gentile world, there are two groups too, right? I'm assuming all of us are Gentiles here. We are of the remnant of Gentiles that believe, right? There's a large group of Gentiles who don't believe. We, as believers, are in a group of the believing, rem uh, the believing remnant of, Jew of Gentiles, right? So it's the, same, it's the same sort of idea that even though we didn't have all the promises and all the Old Testament promises and covenants, um, we're still fit for salvation. God reached into our lives personally and breathed life into us. He elected us and is now showing his mercy to us that we will be fit for salvation, right? So the principle of election applies both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, right? And we are, and that's kind of the mystery that we talked about in Ephesians, 
right? That mystery of union of one body, the union of the remnant of Jews and the remnant of Gentiles coming together as one body. And Paul says he was uniquely, remember in Romans early on, he says, I wish to impart a spiritual gift to you because you're doing very well, but I hope to impart a spiritual gift to you. And that's one of the spiritual gifts to them was that Paul, Christ revealed to him personally the mystery of this one new body, which he describes in Ephesians 2 and 3. And that one new body is what he's talking about here, that there's this union between Gentiles and Jews. Remember, before, before Christ uh, died, there was that veil, right? That veil that separated the Jews from the Gentiles, from the Holy of Holies and the, and, and the, and the, you know, the inner court. Um, and so now that that veil has been torn in two, there's now this union that Gentiles can receive salvation through Christ because he fulfilled the law, right? Um, okay, so verse 25 and 26 are showing how God foreordained the Gentiles, right, to become saved. God, God, this is... The Gentiles becoming saved is not a mystery. It's, it was talked about in Old Testament writing, and Paul is going to quote Hosea here um, about that. So read verses 25 and 26, if you would. As indeed he says in Hosea, um, Hosea <clears throat> those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Okay, so he's quoting Hosea 2.23 and 1.10. And I'll just read them just so we have that for context. 2.23 says, And I will say to them that were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. And then 1.10 says, And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, it shall be said unto them, You are the sons of the living God. So I, Hosea is declaring that Israelites were God's people, right? But because of their sin, we've seen there in our history, they would be judged and they would be expelled. The Babylonian captivity and all these, all these wars and all these things, they were going to be expelled from the land. But so for a period of time, they would not be his people in that, in that moment, right? So although they're always his people positionally, right? Because it's an everlasting covenant, but experientially, meaning they were not experiencing that fold, right? That, that, that household where they were in their land doing their thing with God when they were expelled for, for disobedience, at that moment, they were not experiencing of being of the people of God. Yeah? So they wouldn't be receiving the benefits that God had promised them during that time. So they, because we know, we, they started out being under God's uh, protection and security and safety and blessings. Uh, but then they became disobedient. And as a result, they were exiled from their place, and so they weren't receiving those blessings and gifts and all those things um, during that time. But we also know that later Israel did repent, right, would later repent, and then they would experientially become God's people again, in the sense that they would now go back to their land and experience those things. That's what Hosea is talking about here. 
Israel moving kind of in and out of being his people and not his people based upon where they are, in a sense, right? And then, so Paul is pulling from Hosea that idea, that similar situation with the Gentiles, because before that, the Gentiles were not his people, right? We were not his people, but in this dispensation, per se, the age of grace, you would call it, from the church, right, from the day of Pentecost until the rapture, there's this time where the Gentiles are called his people, right? Because out of the people, um, out of the Gentiles, is a remnant. Just like in Israel, out of the Israelites, there is a remnant. And the remnant is always what saves the nation, or always what God works through, is the believing people of Israel. Not every unbelieving Jew, but only the believing Jews does God work through. And, we, and the same application, the same principle is of the Gentiles. God is worldwide blessing through Abrahamic's covenant through the believers of the Gentiles at the moment, right? And so we would say that the rapture, the Holy Spirit dwells us when, when, the Holy, when Christ comes to call back his bride, um, there's no remnant on earth at that time. There's no believers on earth at that time. Even the Jews, any Jew that is believing now in the Messiah is part of the church and they will be raptured. And so there will be, you know, some bad, bad things going on, right? Um, okay, so there was a time when the Gentiles were in a state of unbelief, had no idea. God opened the door to them, right? And believers came from the Gentiles, and those believers are now called his people. And so, so within that group are vessels of mercy and vessels of destruction, right? That's kind of what Paul is all putting together. Um, so Paul is bringing the the principle of Hosea into the Gentiles at this part. Um, okay, so let's look at verse 27 and 28, um, and we're going to see what I was talking about there. There's a remnant, right? And this is so now Paul's quoting from Isaiah. So if you'd read 27, 28 of chapter 9, Romans 9. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Okay, so only the remnant will be saved. The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So Paul is pulling from Isaiah 10, verses 22 to 23, and I'll, I'll read that for context as well. And it says, this is Isaiah 10, 22, and 23. For though your people, Israel, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them shall return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness for a full end, and that determined will the Lord, Jehovah of hosts, make in the midst of all the earth. So the point that Paul is making in, in verse 27 of chapter 9 is that a remnant will be saved. The point of verse 28 is that God will accomplish his purpose and a remnant will survive right so this is back this is back to his earlier point early on in in chapter uh, 9 that the word of God has not failed right in the sense that he promised all these things and even though the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah God is always saving a remnant a remnant is always saved and it it's part of his plan it was part of his plan that Israel would reject their Messiah, 
What is one of the results of Israel rejecting their Messiah for us? Right. If Israel didn't reject their Messiah and accepted him, where would we be? Right? Where would we be? It would be a, a logical question to ask of us, right? So he's not, the, the church is not plan B or like, well, shoot, that didn't work out. Let's go see if this happens, you know? <laughs> it was nothing like that, right? He foreordained all those things to happen. And so Paul is putting forth all these evidences to show that this isn't a plan B. The Word of God has not failed. It is God's purpose and God's plan for it to carry out. And so his, he can be trusted, right? The question of what about Israel, or what about the Jews, can be still trusted because God is faithful and his word has not failed. And there will be a time when the remnant of Jews will be saved and will and receive those blessings and, and mercies and gifts that God has promised them through their prophets. Um, yeah, are we getting, are we understanding that? Good. Okay, verse 29, he's going to quote again from Isaiah. Um, so read verse 29, if you would. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Right, so this is Isaiah 1 9, and that says, Except Jehovah of hosts and had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have seen, been seen as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. So had God not intervened with grace, right, the Jewish people would have been destroyed, right? There wouldn't even have been a remnant. He's choosing the remnant of the Jews. So through election, which is what Paul has been really kind of harping on here, and the Jews are elected by God, um, he preserves that remnant, right? It's the remnant through whom he will fulfill his kingdom program, not the entire nation, right? Because we know that in the tribulation, not just six million Jews, but two-thirds of the Jews will be judged, right? And will die. Um, God keeps the nation alive because of the remnant, the believing remnant, right? So there's been many attempts over history to exterminate the Jews. And the reason why that has not ever happened is because of the remnant, the believing remnant, right? Um, they have always failed because God has always protected that believing remnant. Okay? <laughs> so let me just summarize quickly 1 through 29. Their rejection, Israel's rejection of the Messiah did not mean God's plan and program failed, right? Rather, everything happened according to God's plan. So it was in the program of God, right, that the nation of Israel would reject Jesus as their Messiah. And because of Israel's rejection, mercy was given to the Gentiles, right? Um, but that mercy given to the Gentiles wasn't at the exclusion or total exclusion of the Jews, Right? It wasn't, I'm shutting you off completely. It was just that I'm, the shift was open to the door to the Gentiles. Um, because even among the Jews is a believing remnant, right? There's always a remnant coming to saving faith of the Jews as well. 
uh, there are vessels of mercy and there are vessels of wrath among both the Jews and the Gentiles. Um, so the reason why the, the gospel went to the Gentiles was because the Jews rejected the gospel, their Messiah, but that was also something that God had foreordained and planned. We saw in Hosea, right, that that's what would happen. The people that were not my people would now become my people, right? So it's not, that's not a new concept of the Gentiles becoming into God's fold. All right, any, any thoughts or comments or ideas, rebuttals, <laughs> anything? All right, so let's, let's continue on then. So now Paul's going to explain Israel's rejection. Basically, what their position was, why they rejected it, and that's what he's going to kind of go through, and it's very good for us to understand. So he's going to deal with the subject of um, God's program of sovereignty and election. Um, and so it's going to be from the standpoint of human responsibility, and he will show how they came to the, the premise that they were not going to receive their Messiah. And so the first part is the stumbling of the Jews, and that's chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. And we see that we're introduced to this great paradox, right? So read 30 and 31, if you would. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles, which follow not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Right. So do we see the paradox there? The paradox is the Gentiles who did not have the law got righteousness. The Jews who did have the law didn't get righteousness. Right? That's an that's an interesting perspective, an interesting paradox there, right? Um, because the Jews had a means to understand righteousness from the law. The Gentiles had nothing. But what did they have? A righteousness that is by what? Faith. Faith, right? So the, the paradox is that it's this, this paradox is, is found, and Paul is quoting this, this what they call Mishnaic Judaism. It's the idea that um, it's a religious belief within Judaism that man can gain righteousness through his own work, right? His own doing, um, his own efforts, right? We have a culture like that today. Generally, people think if you're a good person and you help and you're generous and you're kind and all these things, you've earned, you've earned good rapport with God, right? That's kind of the same idea that they had, but they were obtaining righteousness by following the Mosaic law and it became a massive mess because they took the law and they were so afraid of breaking it. Remember we talked about that? They put a, the, they put a, a, a gate or a fence around the Torah, right? And they, so if it said something like, I'll just give you a couple examples. It said something like, in, when, when they took over the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, the pagans, would take a goat, right? And they would... Right, and they would take the milk from the mother and they would boil the goat in the mother's milk, right? And it was a pagan ritual that they would then offer to Baal, right? And so God says, don't do that. Don't do pagan practices. And one of the examples is doing those things because that's what the pagans did, that's what the Canaanites did. Well, the Mishnaic Jews, they said, well, gosh, that means we can't mix 
because the whole idea is you know mixing the, the milk and the meat together right that's the way they took it they didn't take it as a sacrifice to Baal they took it as just don't do this don't do that right so it became such an issue that they couldn't eat um, they could never combine milk and meat together in a meal because they were worried that they would uh, offend that scripture offend that law and so they would say oh okay so that means you can only eat meat at lunch and cheese at dinner or vice versa you could never eat them in the same meal because if you ate meat and then you drank milk in your belly it would mix right and so god's word says don't do that which they completely misunderstood and then it became well what happens if you if you you know have some meat and you wipe off your plate and then later on you go and you have cheese for dinner and there's still a little piece of meat on that and it gets mixed and then you eat it you violated the law of Moses, right? And so what they do is they say, okay, now you have to have plates for meat and plates for cheese, right? And so, so what I'm saying is that they came up with this whole idea of things completely irrelated from the Mosaic law of not following Canaanite pagan practices. And they became so legalistic about their things that they would come up with, okay, you can't eat meat and cheese together at lunch. You've got to separate them. And then someone else came along, well, what if this? What if that? And so they said, okay, they have two separate plates so that we never have, you know, this, this whole idea. Well, that's that, that's what, that is what is an example of how they thought that if we did all these things, we would be righteous because we're preventing ourselves from doing all these things. So we have all these strict rules and regulations um, and so they thought they were going to be self-righteous, right? And so that's, if, if you can diligently follow that law, you would be declared righteous, right? You would be a righteous person. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying, that they thought their righteousness came from observing these works. The Gentiles never, we don't worry about any of that kind of stuff, right? We just have to put our faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And th but they, so the, the premise is that the Jews also would, right? They, it's always been by faith, always. When you follow the Mosaic law, it was by faith that God received these offerings, these sacrifices, these things to, to show forth that you were just living your life as though God is with you, right? That you're honoring him, you're giving the first fruits, you're doing these things. They had to live by faith that it value it was valuable to God, not the actual doing of the things per se, but the fact that God was involved with your life somehow, right? Okay, so the reality that Paul is saying that this Mishnaic understanding of doing following the law so precisely and so perfectly in all these things uh, gave them a, self, a sense of self-righteousness, right? Read verse 32a. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, right? As if it were based on works. So the Jewish people pursued righteousness, but they failed to get righteousness because they pursued it on the basis of works, not on the basis of faith, right? That's what Paul is saying. So rather than trusting God, they trusted their own works. Um, and in the end, their own works failed to bring them to righteousness. Right? The Gentiles who did not seek righteousness by works 
they ended up receiving it because they received righteousness by faith. Right? That's the paradox that Paul is talking about. And remember, the context is why did the Jews reject their Messiah? Right? That's kind of why he's trying to give you this understanding. And so what happens? They stumble. Read 32b to 33, if you would. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, so they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who's the stumbling stone? Jesus Christ, right? Because Jesus Christ is all about faith in what he did, right? What he did. So they, Israel, in seeking to get righteousness by works and not faith, they avoided faith, right? And insisted upon works. They avoided faith and insisted upon works. So when Christ comes to declare that righteousness doesn't come by works, it comes by faith, that's completely contrary to what they've been thinking and practicing and doing. So what are they prepared for? They're prepared to reject him, essentially, right? They were prepared to reject the Messiah because he came preaching right. that your faith has to be greater than the Pharisees who are doing all these things, right? Um, that premise, that belief, that, that belief that you could obtain righteousness by following the works of the law was contrary to what Christ came and taught, right? And we, what... Christ came and taught was on the Sermon on the Mount. It's a beautiful example of how what righteousness is or what following the law really is. It's the Sermon on the Mount, right? So Christ, they were prepared to reject the Messiah because it was on faith. So Christ, as Paul's saying, became a stumbling block, right? They stumbled over the stumbling stone, right? He's Behold, I am laying in Zion. God is putting forth the Messiah there, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Right? So he's, he's saying, my son that I'm giving to you, you're not going to like. You're going to reject because it's contrary to your whole relationship to me, your whole works-related system. Right? Um, it's because they sought righteousness by the law and not by faith. Therefore, they stumbled. Um, Okay, so let's just quickly end with um, 33. So, verse 33. We read 33? Yeah, we just read it. Oh, 33b. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, uh, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Is that 33b or is that uh, Isaiah 8.14, I believe? That's Isaiah Okay. Okay, that's Isaiah 8.14, quoting the other ones. Yes, 32 and 33. Okay, so we're seeing that um, God purposely caused the Jews to reject their Messiah because he allowed them to, to not follow him by faith, follow them by work. So when the Messiah come, they were already prepared in their hearts and their minds, the leaders, and the people just follow their leaders, that this has to be done by works, Right? So we see sort of how this is working itself out of why the Jews rejected their Messiah. And he has more to say about that, so next time we will go through that. All right, any, any comments on that? Or any? Pretty interesting, though, huh? Okay, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you, Lord, and 
gratitude and gratefulness and loving towards you for you give us everything. You've elected us, you've justified us, you've sanctified us, you will glorify us, you give us your word that we could rest assured, that we can know knowledge, we can have wisdom, that we can know you as you really are. Lord, we're thankful that we have the opportunity to come together and, and learn about it corporately. Lord, we pray that we would not be deceived by false doctrine or false teaching, Lord, but that you would reveal and illuminate the scriptures to us and that the Holy Spirit would guide us and teach us in our moment-by-moment -moment daily activities. We love you. We praise you. We pray for the worship service that as a corporate body you'd be pleased with us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.